Welcome to Award Winners. I'm your co-host, John, joined by the other co-host, who you can take with you, and I've taken him many places, David. This is at the Oscars, where we watch Oscar-winning movies while enjoying Oscar Meyer Wieners. It's a celebration of American culinary and cinematic pop culture. In this episode, we discuss the screwball family comedy, You Can't Take It With You, winner of the 1938 Oscar for Best Picture. Dave, name some places I've taken you. Well, the MTA Museum is probably one of my favorites. You drug me to it because I'm like, I don't want to go see a bunch of trains that aren't moving. And honestly, it was a great museum. Loved it. And I didn't drug you. I dragged you. You drugged me and dragged me, maybe. Other places, Kansas City had a great time at the World War I Museum. You found some uh, barbecue places that we went. Also lovely. So this episode's a little bit later than normal, John. I'm going to be really honest here. The Oscars bummed me out. I'm over a four or five month Oscar season. Like it, it just it sapped all of my energy. And as soon as the winner was announced, I was like, I need a break. I need a couple months off. Like I can't do these really heavy movies that I only sometimes like. I know everyone's talked about it to death, but the slap really did take the fun out of that. It yeah. feels like every moment after that was like, what the fuck? This is my take on the slap. I haven't heard anyone else say the same thing yet. Do you know what segment ran more or less immediately after the slap? I think they announced a winner. Yeah, but do you know what segment came immediately after that? The memorial. You know who was first in the memorial? I don't know who was first, but it was Sidney Poitier, who slapped someone in his fucking movie. I was like, oh my God, they can't get away from it. It's so amazing. (laughs) Good, Lesbie. Yeah, you saw it. I saw it. What are you going to do about it? I don't know. My general thought for the Oscars was it was kind of a shit show this year. I'm happy for Coda to win Best Picture. They all seem like really great people. I mean, I am a little sad that their moment was a little... Overshadowed? Overshadowed by a massive slap. It just wasn't fun anymore. You know, like everyone's moment where they should have been celebrating a career achievement was basically overshadowed. Like, imagine you being at... Oh, a work dinner like that. And someone just coming up on stage and slapping the shit out of somebody else. Oh, my God. Uh, Oh, that's a good way to put it. And then that person refuses to leave. I don't want to talk about it any more than that. I I just thought it was funny that Sidney Poitier was the first person that they basically talked about immediately after. I would just say, like, what are your thoughts on CODA? Because we're going to have to cover it eventually. Yeah. I liked Coda. I think we talked about this in our Oscar preview episode. I thought it was a nice family movie. You kind of know where it's going right from the get-go. You still enjoy it. Ultimately forgettable. What's your take? There's a lot of cool things about it. It's fine. I think I may have come down on it too hard during our Oscar preview where I was like, I don't think this movie should have been nominated. You know, I've had some time to sit on it and think about it. Did you say that? I don't remember you saying that. <laughs> I felt it in my heart. I may not have said it. but I've come a little bit more around on it. I don't think it's the best movie of the year, but I'm, I'm happy for them. So we should actually talk about who won our Oscar pool. I actually thought you were going to segue into the golden Frank. Well, go ahead. If you want to, you can start talking about that while I figure it out. Yeah. yeah. So this is another thing that was contested by me and Dave. We could not figure out 
collectively, if there was a movie that we agreed upon as being the best movie of the year, nothing really struck me. And I, I don't think it's necessarily Hollywood's fault or the movie's fault. I, I feel, as Dave mentioned, the last year was rough. I didn't feel like movies were my outlet for entertainment last year. Honestly, I, I didn't watch too many movies. With that being said, Dave showed me his list of top 10 movies, and we will it down to one that we agreed. King Richard, we agreed, collectively ranks the highest amongst the two of us, and that's sort of our meeting point. We It's a compromise vote, but that is the Oscars, <laughs> right? <laughs> I think the movie's good. Do I think Will Smith, Smith is anything special in the movie? I don't, actually. I think I mentioned that. I don't really think it's that much of a stretch for him to act as as Richard. Is, is it Williams? I guess it it's probably Williams. probably is. <laughs> I actually think the girls who play the Williams sisters are, are much better in their roles. So I would recommend people see it. Dave, anything to add to King Richard? It's definitely a compromise, but it's not one that I'm angry about. I think it's a good movie. Personally, if you just asked me to pick the best movie of 2021, I would have gone with Pig. Uh, I love Pig. Loved it, loved it, loved it. You didn't love it as much as I did, but that's okay. I don't think it's for everybody. It's enjoyable, especially if you don't know what you're getting into. And I really didn't when I watched the movie. I think that's on Hulu right now. So go check that out. I have our winner. Just to catch everyone up, every year we do a poll. We had a tie between our good friend Mark Hoffmeyer over at Movie Films and Flicks. That's a podcast that I, I co-host on a regular basis. Another one of our friends on Instagram, Predict Flicks, they each got 21 correct. Wow. They did really well. And then Predict Flick, uh, who you should follow on Instagram, you gotta just keep hammering that, he won on tiebreakers. So Predict Flicks, he wants us to watch Argo. I'm cool with that. I haven't seen this movie since it came out, and I barely remember it. So. <laughs> I watched it once. We'll figure out when the best time to do that is. That might be like two from now, because that's a fun one that I've actually had on our back pocket that I've wanted to do for a while. Didn't want to cut you off. Did you want to give a best movie of the year? I could not decide. Honestly, I I don't know. I think Spider-Man would have been my best movie had I not known about what was going to happen in it. I think the internet spoiled everything for me. I think that would have been a massive shock for me had I had no clue as to what's going on. So I've adopted the Dave Cross, I don't watch trailers mantra. I don't watch trailers anymore, and I don't look at movie spoilers at all. You know what I also do? I mute words. I've started reading <laughs> the name of movies that I'm that are coming out. Doctor Strange, 1978. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Not that one. Did just release a new uh, Blu-ray on that. How did you know? <laughs> so, John, I want to jump into the next part of our, our discussion here and talk about some first-run movies because I have something I really want to talk about. I went and saw everything everywhere all at once twice. I went to the theater twice. Okay. Isn't that available for streaming? I don't think so. Not yet. Uh, okay, so it's not available everything, everywhere, all at once, only in theaters. <laughs> For now, in the future. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I love this movie. It's one of the best movie-going experiences I have had in years. It's like the best movie I've seen since Parasite. Oh. It is fantastic, and it is a movie you should see on the big screen. Like The crowd I saw it with were going crazy. There were people clapping, people shouting at the screen. I was at an Alamo Draft House where you're not supposed to do any of that stuff. It's a really fun movie, really creative. Uh, and if it doesn't get nominated for anything, I'm going to riot. Have you seen anything uh, recently? I still am not particularly going to the theater. I don't even know what's coming out, I have to say. I've kind of stopped looking. I think that's COVID's fault. I saw the Batman movie, which I liked. felt like there were two capers in there. Mm -hmm. There's like a first story arc, and then there's sort of what felt like a second ending. Uh, they could have 
maybe separated those or done something a little different there. And then I watched Jackass for uh, a lot of dicks and balls. Like if you want to see any of those dudes naked, this is your movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I saw both of those. I really like Jackass. I laugh a lot. Batman, kind of mediocre. It's like a okay three-hour movie. Could have been a really good two-hour movie. I'm shocked that everyone went crazy over it. They're like, this movie's the best Batman ever. And I'm like, eh, maybe you're just thirsty for Batman. <laughs> It's definitely a darker, more horror-focused version of Batman, in my opinion. What was your take on that? Batman was dumber in this, somehow smart and dumb at the same time. There's a lot of there's a couple scenes that they smash cut that don't really make sense. Wasn't really into the action. I will say that Robert Pattinson does disappear behind that mask. There is something there that is awesome. This movie is it's fine. I'll probably give the next movie a chance as long as it's under three hours. I actually thought the action was pretty good. And some of the cinematography I really liked during the action scenes as well. The thing that stuck out to me about this movie, that there was a lot of what I was calling, quote, Gotham porn. And it's just hanging shots of dreary, dark, wet Gotham. And like Batman walking in Gotham and Batman driving in Gotham. And you know what, guys? Gotham's depressing. (laughs) So, John, we're here. Are you ready to do this? Let's take it with us. Okay, so how would you describe this movie, Dave? Two young lovers, their families don't get along. It's like the zany Romeo and Juliet with no murders. And that's actually probably pretty accurate. Clash is class when a well-to-do boy falls for a free-spirited young woman from the opposite end of the socio-political spectrum. I get you going there. (laughs) Anything to add to that? It's pretty much high class meets low class. Work ethic meets party would you say low class? It's not even. They're both no, wealthy. I mean, what's, that's from the perspective of one character. And the idea that they're both wealthy, John, yeah, I was going to bring that up too. <laughs> it's like, they seem pretty pretty well off. They have their own house. And if you're a millennial, you'll never own your own house. So, movie facts. You want to get into this, Dave? This was released on September 29th, 1938. The runtime is a long two hours and six minutes. The budget is 1.6 mil. The box office was... So the director is Frank Capra. We covered him in It Happened One Night, which is a movie I actually really love. He was nominated for 15 Oscars and he won six. Other movies you might know for him, um, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington and It's a Wonderful Life. This movie is based on a play called You Can't Take It With You by George S. Kaufman and Moss Hart. This went up against nine other movies, so 10 total I'm going to go old school, John, and try to do this all in one breath. See if I can do it. You got it. Okay, one breath. It went up against The Adventures of Robin Hood, Alexander's Ragtime Band, Boys Town, The Citadel, Four Daughters, Grand Illusion, Jezebel, Pygmalion, and Test Pilot. I I came close to not being able to do it. (laughs) There's a lot of words there. Thoughts on any of these movies, John? We covered The Adventures of Robin Hood in one of our episodes previously. We both like that one. That is actually what I think is the best movie this year. I also watched Jezebel, which I also thought was pretty good. It starts out kind of slow. I really liked where it goes. It's also kind of timely. So it's about yellow fever breaking out in New Orleans and them having to quarantine the whole city. Lots of people are dying. People are worried about their health. They're doing all sorts of crazy things to prevent this disease from spreading. They're firing cannons over the sound to help stir the air. Constantly in the background, you're hearing these cannons fire, which is like grating on everyone's nerves all day. Feels like COVID. I relate to that movie. I, re- I relate to that movie. I have seen one other movie, and that's The Adventures of Robin Hood, like you mentioned. I do like it better than You Can't Take It With You. 
I really recommend everyone check that movie out. From my just cursory reading, it was really hard to figure out what Biggest Snub was or what this race was like. What I kept coming across, though, was that Grand Illusion, which I believe is a prison escape movie. That's what most people think should have actually won. Hmm. Yeah, it's French, too. Yeah. I also heard really good things about The Citadel, which I purchased and planned to watch, but ran out of time. <laughs> we should have looked at the Rotten Tomato ratings. I, I didn't do that. I know Adventures of Robin Hood is close to 100%. And I think I looked at Jezebel and it was at like 96%. I think Can't Take It With You is actually closer to like 70 something percent. So that probably tells you everything you need to know about this year. Go see The Adventures of Robin Hood. It didn't age as well as one might hope. In all the reviews, like the modern reviews I've read, that's the one thing everyone talks about. They just said it comedy doesn't. Let's get into nominations. Nominated for seven Oscars and it won two. So it won Best Picture and Best Director. So it was nominated for Best Supporting Actress, Best Writing, Best Cinematography, Best Film Editing, and Best Sound. Just to talk about the writing for one second there. I was looking at what's different between this movie and the play that it's based on. They added like a whole backstory for a lot of characters. I think that's in part why it won for writing is they took a popular play, expanded upon a lot of the ideas without changing the core themes of it. So other films that came out this year. So we had Bringing Up Baby, Angels with Dirty Faces, and The Lady Vanishes. John, do you want to take a guess what the top grossing movie was? Would actually probably guess Adventures of Robin Hood. You are correct. Yeah, I feel like when we were reading about that earlier, people just like went to the theater to see that because it was a big swashbuckling epic that everyone loved. And Errol Flynn was super popular at the time. Yeah, I mean, it's still really cool stunts. That's what we have. John, red carpet. Okay, so normally Dave and I do a movie-themed hot dog. This time, since the movie's called You Can't Take It With You, I was like, Dave, I want you to think of a hot dog that you could take with you. Uh, So how would you do a hot dog, Dave, that you could easily transport somewhere? Maybe throw a topping or two on there and try to make it so that the topping makes it as well. I need some clarifications here. Because right now, are you asking me to make Tupperware? Because Tupperware exists. Could it could be Tupperware, but it could be anything. Like it could be uh, you actually make some kind of corn dog that won't grease up your pocket. It could be <laughs> grease-free corn dog. <laughs> wrap it up like a Chipotle burrito. Whatever it is doesn't leak. Maybe you create some crazy box. Maybe you do have some crazy Tupperware contraption that helps keep the hot dog in place. Whatever it might be, Dave. What did you come up with for nothing? Because I was very confused. One, the hot dog is very versatile and very portable as it is. The bun is what you're holding on to. And the hot dog meat is like the main vehicle, right? It's the main thing you want. Yeah, yeah. It's pretty kind of already there in my opinion. I mean, that's why the bun was invented. Yeah. It would make it easier. But let's say you want to stick it in your pocket, Dave. I want to stick a hot dog in my pocket. <laughs> and keep it for 30 minutes as you go from one spot to another on the train, maybe. I would love to have an old school thermos that I would be able to put the hot dog in so that I get where I'm going. It's still going to be warm. That would work with normal hot dogs. Imagine boiling some hot dogs, pouring the hot water into the thermos, dropping in the hot dogs and closing it up. They're going to be warm when you have them in the future. All you have to do is take care of the bun. I was thinking a hot dog put together, but I like that idea too. Conceptually, it's probably easier to do. I've got a coffee mug, like a coffee thermos thing already downstairs. I could probably fit two hot dogs in there, some boiling water, close (laughs) it up, take it with me. We're done. Uh, Tangentially, this is what I learned today. Dave, did you know hot dogs come in cans in England? No. (laughs) 
<laughs> they, they do. You can get a can of hot dogs. There's like five hot dogs in a can. I do have one more note about this food, though. Yeah. So usually we do make a hot dog recipe. One of the reasons I went along with your your game, John, and, and denied our wonderful audience a hot dog recipe is because this is the one of the rare movies where they actually eat hot dogs in it. <laughs> and their recipe was literally just like having hot dogs. They, it was just Frankfurt. <laughs> so well, like, sauerkraut and mustard were on there, too. Yeah, that's the simple. Just make a simple hot dog. You're, you're good. Yeah. <laughs> There's a fancy hot dog place near my house, and I had them deliver it. They're called Hottie Dog. <laughs> the hot dogs actually come in these little boxes, and one side of it slides out, kind of like a tray. Okay. And I was like, okay. that works, because I ordered like a chili dog, and I had everything on there. I was like, wow, that's kind of incredible how it survived the transit from an Uber Eats driver. But your thermos idea is ingenious in many ways, and maybe we'll have to do that the next time we want hot <laughs> hot dogs. When we 24 hour road trip with a thermos full of hot dogs. Let's go. <laughs> we should market <Okay>. that. <laughs> I don't know if I want to be involved in that fiasco. Uh, okay. That was a lot of fun. Actors. You ready to talk about actors? Tell us about this guy named James Stewart. Jimmy Stewart, not to be confused with Jimmy Dean. I don't know why I, in my head I always kind of get those two mixed up. He plays Tony Kirby. We previously covered James Stewart in our Greatest Show on Earth episode. That is when he plays a sad clown on the run. Uh, I do not recommend you watch that movie, but I recommend you listen to the episode because we make fun of it <laughs> a lot. Not a good movie. Stewart was an iconic actor with a decades-long career. When I personally think of classic Hollywood, he's the person who comes to mind. You know him in roles like High Noon, Vertigo, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. Rear Window, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, and It's a Wonderful Life. He won his only Academy Award for Best Actor for his work in the comedy The Philadelphia Story. He didn't think much of that win. One of the things I I read is that he stored his Best Actor Oscar at his father's hardware store for 25 years. (laughs) You know, give it to your parents. They're proud of you. We're not going to really talk about this a lot. He did a ton of Westerns. He had a period with Hitchcock, decades-long career, really versatile actor. So Stewart hated that studios were colorizing old black and white movies. Do you have any thoughts on colorizing old movies? I guess you could say that maybe it changes the visuals. Black and white does create a certain effect, and if a director is using that intentionally, then adding color to it could very much change how that works. The colorization looks weird. Guys, it looks really strange. At the time, the color process, even for color movies at the time, was Technicolor. And that creates weird effects, in my opinion, too. Like if you were to watch uh, that Adventures of Robin Hood movie, I'm pretty sure it's in color. or There's a color version of it. The colors are not natural. They stand out in certain ways. Not super into colorization, mostly because it can change exactly what you said, John. The visuals of the movie. Light black and white movies differently than you light colored movies. If you're looking at something in color versus black and white, even in photography, it really does change what's emphasized. Uh, All right. Tell us more, Dave. Gene Arthur as Alice Sycamore. Before we watched this movie, if I saw her name on screen and then someone showed me a picture, I was like, oh, her. She was a Broadway and silent film actress who successfully transitioned into the talkies. Arthur had featured roles in three Capra films. So Mr. Deeds Goes to Town uh, with Gary Cooper. You Can't Take It With You with Jimmy Stewart, who we just talked about, and Mr. Smith goes to Washington again with Stewart. I found uh, a quote from a romantic commie historian 
there's no other actress who is cl- as closely associated with screwball comedies than Gene Arthur. And I, I don't know if that's true or not. I just wanted to share, <laughs> share it. So other things, she hated publicity and rarely did interviews with the press. For action pictures, she was casting over 20 Westerns in a two-year period, and each of those for $200 a piece. That's a grueling pace. Commentary on the DVD for You Can't Take It With You, and they talked about how different the Hollywood schedule was. You basically shot six days a week, had Sunday off. You frequently went really late Saturday night, well after midnight. That's how it was. That's brutal. Kind of glad they got rid of it. I'm pretty sure that's why there's unions and things like that there, too. (laughs) Yeah. Frank Capra really, really loved her. He said she was his favorite actress. She really suffered from stage fright, which really kind of derailed her career later in life. And she never fully got over it. She's kind of an actress that I feel like I should know, and yet I don't know anything about her. I am not very familiar with her either. Production facts. So uh, this movie was based on a play that Frank Capra saw. Same name. He asked Columbia Pictures to buy the rights to the movie, but the studio declined saying... $200,000 $200,000 was too much money. That was a big sum of money at the time, to be fair. A short while later, Capra was visiting the UK, and he learned that Columbia Pictures was using his name to promote movies that he had nothing to do with and that this movie had bombed. Someone actually came up to him and said, sorry to hear that your movie bombed. He's like, what? I've never heard of this movie. So he went back to the US, went to the Columbia Pictures people and said, you can't do this. You got to take my name off these movies that you're doing over there. Part of the reason for them doing this was that if they attached his name to these movies in England, they did much better. So it makes sense for the movie companies, not so much sense for Capra. You know, after some back and forth, he decided to sue to have his name removed from this. After some legal chicanery, Columbia Pictures eventually got the case moved to England. They were kind of hoping each one of these successive court trials, I guess the first one was in LA, you know, this all took place in England. You got to take it to the the English courts. I think they're trying to get Capra to just stop his his lawsuit because he wasn't working at the time the reason he did not go work for another movie company was because he was under contract with columbia there was some collusion there to keep him from working until his contract was fulfilled Uh, so so that's also why he couldn't work things started to go his way he got a call from the head of columbia pictures at one point saying you're gonna win they were gonna actually send those columbia executives to jail in england capra eventually just said like look it was never my intent to have anyone sent to jail He decided he would come back to work, drop the lawsuit. They uh, removed his name from those films that it wasn't working on. And they bought him the rights to this movie because it was something he wanted to do. And and that's the background to how this movie got made. Wow. So sort of a passion project, also a vengeance project. (laughs) Well, good for him, right? That's awesome. (laughs) Yeah. Well, like imagine, Dave, we sticking your name on like a random podcast that, that you've never heard. Well, if that happened, that means this podcast is great. And everyone knows about it. (laughs) So in like some way, (laughs) it's a good world. (laughs) Uh, How about historical context? Dave, tell us why this movie was popular at the time. Because of the depression, the great depression. Whenever we do these old movies, it's always the great depression made it popular. The movie was released in 1938 during the tail end of the great depression. And at the time people were scared to take risks because jobs were hard to find and making a living was difficult So you can't take it with you is in some ways a commentary on that, that mindset. Okay, Dave, let's get into the movie. So we watched, can't take it with you. 1938. How does the movie start? Ruthless banker 
Anthony Kirby wants to establish a government-sanctioned munitions factory. His plan is to buy 12 blocks of land that surround his competitor's factory, thereby forcing the business to close somehow. His only obstacle is Grandpa Martin Vanderhoff, who's played by Lionel Barrymore, and he's an eccentric old man who refuses to sell his house. Uh, John, right off the bat, this plan makes no sense, right? So let's talk about zoning. Maybe they didn't have it in 1938. There's a munitions factory in the middle of a like civilian center. What I don't understand about it is like he's going to buy up the land around the factory, but owning the land around the factory can't force a business to go under. You can just still drive on the streets. Yeah, I don't understand. Maybe it's got something to do with just making the other guy's life difficult. I mean, it could be that, yeah. <laughs> Just making it real hard to go anywhere and do anything. It's a, a really squishy plan that I don't fully get. I guess it just has to do with like people being worried about the war at the time. There's a war on in Europe at that point. I mean, that's why they're building the munitions factory. They're going to make a monopoly to arm Europe. That's, that's the underlying understanding of it. He's like the Iron Man of the day. Say, Tony, do you realize there won't be a bullet gun or cannon made in this country without us? Dad, don't tell me you've forgotten the slingshot market. Yeah, so any any other comments on this scene other than, like, off the bat? You know, it doesn't really even matter, I have to say, what, what the backstory is. It's just that this guy won't sell his home. This other guy has a plan that requires that little bit of land. Grandpa's house is a menagerie of oddballs. This includes his daughter, Penny, a playwright, her husband, Paul, who constructs fireworks, their daughter, Essie, Her husband, Ed, who's a xylophone player, a printer, and a former collegiate football player. And then their other daughter, Alice, paid by Jean Arthur. There was also a bunch of other hanger-ons that pop in and out, including a Russian dance teacher and accountant turned into a mask maker. A lot of weird stuff happening in this house. You know, it, it makes me think of like the cast of a Wes Anderson movie. Wes Anderson has done it better, but maybe this is what he draws upon is this idea of quirky characters all living together and playing off of each other in strange ways. Some trivia about this scene. So Lionel Barrymore in this movie, and yes, that is uh, Drew Barrymore's... Great uncle, I think? Yeah, he's a relative. We'll say he's, he's definitely a relative. He had debilitating arthritis. They actually had to adjust his character in the script so the character would be on crutches because he just was having a really difficult time getting around. Yeah, so they wrote it into the script that he fell sliding down the stairs and... Hurt his ankle. Another fact about this, the football player actually played football in college. He went to Alabama, which is why you see him wearing a cardigan with the letter A. He got the part because he knew how to play xylophone. Uh, and that's something that he does in the movie a lot. Good for him for getting this part. When I, when you told me that he was actually a real football player, I was like, are you kidding me? He doesn't look like a real football player. And then I had to remember, like, football football is much different in the 38s, like way different. Yeah, there was not a professional league at the time. Everyone was smaller than us. Smaller than us. Yeah, and they went both ways, I'm pretty sure. I think I don't think you could have people <laughs> What out. do you mean so they like, went both both ways, Dave? <laughs> offensive and defense. Like, there was a time where you... <laughs> in 1938, they went both ways. I have a couple of questions for our audience about this scene, but really just about this whole setup, right? Would you want to live in this house? I would not. It'd be the most obnoxious roommate you could possibly have, making a noise. And every few minutes, they're like testing some new fireworks in the basement. So the whole house shakes. There's a loud explosion and then something falls off the wall. So personally, no. What about you, Dave? Absolutely not. This sounds terrible. 
yeah, it sounds like a really bad experience. <laughs> Just the xylophone would drive me insane. <laughs> and his wife, who's like dancing around as a ballerina anytime he starts playing. That leads up to our second question. Is there a worse instrument than the xylophone? Yes, Dave, it's the recorder. The recorder. Oh, that's a good one. That's a good one. Okay, I'll take that. I'm just messing with the xylophone. Like, I think it's a goofy instrument, but if you love it, do your thing. I don't really understand how this house functions. Do they all just have menial small jobs and they're still getting by? Because that that place is huge. I mean, I guess they're selling the fireworks because they are making them. At one point, there's a subtle comment about what Grandpa does for a living. Do you remember what he does for a living? He worked in business, and then he inspects stamps. Yes, he evaluates stamp collections. He appraises them, which is not a bad job. You know, if that's something you love, you get to do it all day. He's doing it. Good for him. Here comes the hook to get you involved in the story. Kirby's son, the wealthy person who's trying to buy up all the land, is Tony, played by James Stewart. He's a vice president at his father's company. He's fallen in love with his stenographer, H.R. Nightmare, and her name is Alice Sycamore. Not H.R. Nightmare? <laughs> no, that's her middle name. Alice <laughs> H.R. Nightmare Sycamore. It's very clear he's going to propose to her. But she is the daughter of Martin Vanderhoff. We've got the rich guy. His son falls in love with the wacky character's granddaughter. How would you describe Tony? Tony uh, he's he comes from this family of bankers, and we'll probably get into that in a minute. And I think he feels obligated to continue being a banker because it's expected of him, even though it's not particular what he likes. I also don't think he's as extreme as his father and mother in his thoughts and how he acts. He's more of a moderate, and I actually think that's the same for Alice's character. She's the moderate of her family. Maybe that's why they meet and get along. Yeah, I th- I find him kind of charming. He's probably my favorite part of this entire film. Goofy. You're right. He's not as not as strict as his father, not as zany as as the Vanderhoffs. I like him. I like it. It's also interesting to see a very young Jimmy Stewart. <laughs> and then Alice Sycamore. Honestly, she doesn't seem like she has much of a personality, especially coming from a family of, of eccentrics. And that's actually like maybe one of the flaws of the film. One of the main themes is do what you love. What does Alice love? I don't know. She loves Tony, but what does she want to do with her life other than get married? If her belief system is founded on this idea of doing what you want and like, why is she working in an office? I had the same question. I don't know. I don't know. Because the movie needed to set it up. Or maybe she's just trying it out. Yeah, to I don't see know. if she likes it. I don't know. Like, she's just exploring different things in life. Yeah, I, I don't know. That's why like, it's a little. I'm a little confused with the setup. Like if they just like randomly bumped into each other on the street and then it's, you know, how to meet cute and then it's time to work, probably be easier. So is this movie secretly You Got Mail 100 years earlier? <laughs> you Got Mail. Well, I, I don't really remember You Got Mail, so you're going to have to explain so, that to me. So You Got Mail is basically the same thing. There's a big mega book corporation that one guy works for, Tom Hanks, and then May Ryan works for a tiny little local bookshop and has the quirky family. And then they actually, I think, bump into each other on the street. And he's basically been sent to this bookstore to buy it and turn it into another corporate bookstore. I mean, it's it sounded pretty familiar. How many xylophones are in this movie? Uh, I don't remember. Then it's not worth it. No, I'm not going to watch it unless there's 100 xylophones. Xylophone army. <laughs> so one day, Tony and Alice decide to go have a date. And Alice rushes home to get ready. 
As she gets ready, Grandpa Vanderhoff is visited by an IRS agent. The agent tells Grandpa that he owes 22 years of back taxes. Mr. Vanderhoff, the government wants to talk to you about a little matter of income tax. Income tax? Mr. Mr. Vanderhoff, our records show that, uh, that you've never paid an income tax. That's right. Why not? believe in it. Grandpa screws around with him, which I thought was pretty funny. And essentially, Grandpa's like, I don't believe in taxes. I haven't paid anything. Tell me what I get for my taxes. So, John, when I first watched this film, because I, I watched this twice in prep, I, I couldn't tell if Grandpa actually wasn't paying his taxes or if he was screwing with him. And then I came down on the line of, I'm pretty sure Grandpa was screwing with him. What are your thoughts? I don't think he paid his taxes. You don't think he pays his taxes? Okay. I don't think he does. i uh i came down on the other side of uh he did not pay his taxes you know when the guy starts explaining what the money goes for it's paying the president and all these things and he goes well not with my money and with my money (laughs) or frank capper jr who is doing some of the commentary in the blu-ray was saying like that was a common phrase in the capper house when something was done or said well not with my money it's like what the kids would always say to their dad not with my money, no, sir. So, John, I have a, a piece of trivia for you. Lionel Barrymore, a Republican, hated paying his taxes. and He didn't pay his income tax for years and years, and later in his life, he had most of his wages garnished by the government. I mean, that's what happens. That's what happens if you don't pay your, pay your taxes. I'm, I'm going to come out for it here on this podcast, John. I generally am fine paying taxes. It's, it's like a subscription to America. I'm cool with it. I think there's some things that I don't agree with how are spent. It's it's part of the deal. We don't have to get into that, I suppose. No, we I don't, don't know if we anyone don't. cares. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay, cool. So Tony shows up. It's a very wacky house. Uh, <laughs> IRS, IRS man leaves. And he takes Alice out to the theater. theater. But surprise, Tony does not take Alice to the theater. He takes her to a park, which, if you're only paying half attention to the movie, is kind of creepy. Maybe this is actually a horror movie, not a comedy. JK. Yeah, why does he do that? I don't know. They just they don't explain it. I have no idea. And I think he just wants to talk with her. He doesn't really feel like going to the ballet. I think he just wants to have a chat. Yeah, and that's okay. But, you know, let people know beforehand. <laughs> before you kidnap them. <laughs> uh, so, John, this is the most interesting scene in the movie, at least in my opinion. A lot of things I like here. I love the dialogue and interaction between Alice and Tony. I think you get a full display of of really Jimmy Stewart as an actor in his sort of aw shucks vibe. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Tony reveals that while he's a banker from a long line of bankers, it doesn't get his his motor going and that he actually kind of wants to study solar power. What, how how did you feel listening to that? Like, do you feel for him? Sometimes there's things that you do because it feels like you're supposed to do them. I think a lot of people are scared to take a leap to do something different or new because it's hard. It's hard to start a new business or, you know, form your own company. I don't particularly want to do that. It sounds very daunting to me. I I get what they're saying here about fear sometimes motivates people to stay where they are. What's your take on that? Uh, I definitely felt for him and empathize with him because when I was younger, I was on a path to work for my father in my father's business. And I decided not to do that. And I became a journalist. And I remember how how scared I was to tell my family, like, I don't actually want to do this. I want to finish college. I want to be a reporter and I, I, I don't want to do construction work. It actually turned out fine. You know, my head, it was a lot 
scarier than I think it would actually need it to be. And then we made it into a movie called Coda. Oh, you're right. Oh, everyone has that experience, I guess. So essentially, like this sort of scene explains what's going on. And Grandpa's philosophy is that you should do what you are happy with and that you shouldn't let fear rule. Is that basically what you got from it? I did. So, I mean, I, I think Grandpa seems to be independently wealthy as well because not everyone can just do whatever they want. Yeah, exactly. They, they I, I thought fun. the same thing. So there's kind of a balance, and I think it's somewhere in the middle of both of these things. Like, you shouldn't always do something because you have to. You have got to be a little bit pragmatic, but you also don't have to always do something you don't like. I think there's a, a meeting point in the middle, and maybe that's what these two characters are supposed to represent, is this middle aspect of these two different viewpoints. The kids have distilled down some important aspects of the lessons their families have taught them, but they're going their own ways. What I kept thinking about this movie is you're very privileged to be able to make that decision. Yeah. There are plenty of people who like, they just have to do the job that's given to them. You're you're very privileged to be able to do the things you want to do. Especially if you can just quit and not worry about it. I would have been in definitely in situations where I could not quit my job and I hated it. And it was making me sick, physically ill. My hair was falling out and I was breaking into hives, but I could not leave because I I needed the money. Really rough, really, (laughs) really, really rough stuff. So randomly, a group of kids come up and teach Tony and Alice the Big Apple. Did you know what the Big Apple was, John? <laughs> no, I didn't. But just before that, they're about to kiss. This group of little kids comes up with a accordion or something. And they're like, all right, we'll teach you the Big Apple. They're like, isn't this illegal? They're like, Neckin's illegal too. <laughs> like, I did laugh. I don't quite understand why this is in the movie. So I, I did some research on this because I was like, what the hell is the Big Apple? So it's a a dance craze that really hit America in 1937, and it's named after a club in Columbia, South Carolina. When people saw this, they would get the reference, right? This is a joke that probably doesn't land 90 years later. (laughs) So, John, I got to ask you. Uh I'm going to give you some dances. Tell me if they they would make the movie better or not. Okay. Are these real dances? They're they're real dances. They're real dances. Are they all from the same? Are they all from the same? time no, period no 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 okay these are these are in the last 10 years <laughs> would this movie better if the kids taught them flossing no no definitely not it's still fun how about the whip and nene possibly possibly really funny yeah 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 how about gungdom style also possibly yeah possibly pretty good the burning yes <laughs> <laughs> hey mister you want to learn to burning oh you gotta wiggle you gotta wiggle <laughs> I love it. Yes. <laughs> okay. And this is one I, I'm never quite sure what the name of this is. The cha-cha slide or the Casper slide? Are they different things? <laughs> <laughs> I I don't know enough to tell you if they're different things. It wouldn't make the movie better. I, I, think, the, I think the Bernie is probably peak <laughs> of these dances. <laughs> I just my, I just laugh so hard and the kid's like, hey, mister, <laughs> you want to learn, learn to dance? <laughs> oh, man. So Tony and Alice make their way to a fancy restaurant. I think that's where they were supposed to go after the ballet. They see Tony's parents with a bunch of high society people discussing their family trees. The reason they're discussing that is one of them is a lord or has some title. Alice gets a taste of what it's like to be around these high class people. She's worried her family and Tony's family might not really mesh because they're from two drastically different worlds. Again, Tony's parents are like, high rolling bankers who dress nicely and act prim and proper in her family 
kind of does whatever they want they in many ways. <laughs> it's chaos. They are barely controlled chaos. <laughs> yes, that's a good way to describe it. They decide that they need to get their families to meet up. So Dave, does this sound like a recipe for disaster already? Yeah, and I, I want to reiterate, basically Alice was like, your mother has to uh, agree to this marriage. And so I wanted to ask you, John, like, does that make sense to you? I think the answer is it sort of makes sense. Like, I, I don't know if her parents need to meet her family or if his parents need to meet her family necessarily. I think they should meet and hang out collectively. Thinking about this, I don't think my parents have really met any of my girlfriend's parents. My parents haven't either. Like, none of us live in the same town. My sister, who's married to a guy who's from the same area as where my parents live, they've all met because they live you know, next to each other. I don't think it happens if you live in different states until the wedding, I believe. You know, what are your thoughts on this? My thinking was more along the lines of like, does she actually need permission? I find it kind of awkward. I wouldn't sweat it, but you know, that's me. It's like, oh, you don't like me? Well, I don't care. Families are tight knit or they're going to have kids and they want to make sure everyone gets along. Maybe that's important to her to make sure that both families can hang out together in some capacity. I get that. Do I think it's super important? Not necessarily. We're rule, rule breakers, John. Another thing I want to talk about with this scene is Alice screams at one point to cover up for it. Tony's like, there's a bunch of rats in this restaurant. Yeah, it's funny to make fun of the rich people, but you've just tanked this restaurant. You've like killed their clientele. <laughs> the way they're setting this up a little bit is that some of these high class people are really stuffy. But there's one guy, maybe it's the Lord, who's sitting at the table with his parents, who finds all of this to be really amusing. I mean, it is really amusing. It just shows where my brain is at when I'm just like, poor restaurant worker and wait staff who are going to lose out on tips because people are going to stop coming here because of rats. <laughs> Moving on to the next scene, Tony and his parents get ready to go meet Alice's family. They show up and no one is prepared. And it turns out that the Kirby's have arrived a day early. And when the Kirby's walk in just to set the scene, they are accosted with that xylophone player. There's a ballet dancer dancing. Someone is dressed like an ancient Greek who's being painted. Absolute nonsense happening all the time. Top of that, I think uh, Alice slides down the stairs, but first, you know, down the banister and lands <laughs> at the feet of Tony's parents. She then looks up and sees them there and is kind of horrified because she's not dressed in the way women dress at the time period. So I'm pretty sure in 1938 to have a prim and proper family see someone, see a woman slide down a banister in pants would not have been acceptable. So this scene, John, is really the moment that for me, this movie jumped the shark. <laughs> I was just like, I can't handle this. Like, I do not find this this humor funny. It's trying too hard. None of it's landing. And I'm just like, I'm done. <laughs> I just, I, I, yeah. I'm, I'm just over it. At this point, I, it felt like the movie had been on for two hours already. And I was like, God, this has to be almost over. Nope. This is the midpoint. <laughs> like, <laughs> it did take me five tries to go through two hours. And then the second time I watched it, I watched it basically all the way through. I had such a hard time. I watched the ending like four times because I could not pay attention. I just <laughs> tuned out. I was just like, oh, what happened again? Oh, fuck. I got to rewind and start that over. That's why I watched it a second time, because I had a vastly different understanding of this movie before I watched it the second time, because I missed so much. 
there's a lot of little gags in the movie that are thrown out forever. And apparently that's like a, a thing that Capra does a lot. And I, I found some of that to be funny, but not enough to keep me paying attention to the storyline. Anyway, there was it's a terrible meeting. Just ho- absolutely horrible. Does not go well. Really bad first impression. But on top of that, <laughs> the police show up. And the police are there because Ed, who is the son-in-law, football playing, xylophone playing, graphic artist, sort of jack of jack of all trades, ordered to like get people to go to I don't know, fireworks? What, how would you even describe this? They were selling the fireworks and they were selling candy and the, putting the the theme for the fireworks was gonna be called like the revolution Russian, or something yeah, like Russian that. Revolution and it was like the revolution. reds versus the whites. So like they were using that because there are a lot of explosions happening there. And he liked, I guess, the communist propaganda flyers. So he was using <laughs> that to advertise the fireworks. The feds picked up on this and thought he was like inciting a revolution in the U.S. and then show up at his house. That would, I would still happen today, by the way. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Essentially, they show up and arrest everyone, including the Kirby's. And there's one final thing that we didn't mention. Tony had his parents come a day early on purpose so he could surprise the Sycamore Vanderhoff clan. Because he wanted his family to see his future wife and her, her families. As they are. As they are, yeah. So, John, what a terrible idea, right? Like, that's... Uh, is that I've, psycho level? That's, 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 you're going to get in big trouble for it. You can't really show up unannounced and then expect dinner to go well. I understand what he's doing and why he's saying, like, oh, I don't want your parents to put on airs and pretend there's something they're not. Because that's really not how we are. Uh, but I think most people do that for the first impression. And that's fine. She has every right to be mad at him for pulling something like that, I believe. But I think her she overreacts a little bit, in my opinion. Yeah, I don't know if she overreacts. I, I kind of was like, no, he shouldn't have shown up. That's wild. Um, she leaves the city, Dave. That's she, an overreaction. Well, she leaves the city. She's being hounded by the press. Final note about the scene, John. Always have to note it when it comes up. They eat Frankfurters. Really, this <laughs> is the culmination of all our movie watching right here, John. Hot dogs on screen. <laughs> Not in a can. So they're arrested. Everyone goes to jail. Uh, While in jail, Miss Kirby repeatedly assaults Alice, and she's absolutely the worst. Basically, she's like, you're unworthy of my son. And at the same time, Grandpa explains to Kirby that you can't take it with you. And what he really means is you can't take money with you. You need to have friends. You need to have your life, experience great things. Well, he's also just saying, like, what's the point of having all this money? When you're dead, it does nothing for you. Well, the point of having all this money, John is so you can buy an app so you <laughs> I was going to go I was going to make an Elon joke Hold on where's this uh, going Dave the point of all this is to make as much money as possible so you can buy Twitter so then everyone leaves Twitter because they hate you <laughs> maybe that's what he was after the whole time he's just like let's take it down from the inside and buy the whole thing <laughs> that is 3D level chess <laughs> I don't use Twitter anyway so it impacts me not at all I hope it goes the way of MySpace, which I think sold for something like $600 million. When it was resold and reevaluated a few years later, it was worth $20 million. <laughs> you know who made bank? Tom. Good Tom, Tom from MySpace, our first friend, has been floating around the world taking pictures, doing whatever he wants since then. Good for Tom. <laughs> I mean, just what it comes down to is uh, Grandpa's philosophy is don't constantly work. That's a good lesson, right? But again, Grandpa's philosophy is... An extreme. It's pretty extreme, and he also happens to be maybe independently wealthy. I, I will say that we're making fun of us a little bit, but I did think Lionel 
Barrymore had a really good performance in this scene and I enjoyed it. And, and generally I am a little bit seduced by grandpa's argument. I am the type of person who I, I do want to do the things I want to do. And because of that, I've been able to really bifurcate my work self and my off time self. It's good, Dave. Do you find yourself always on working? I kind of work until it's done, especially with the work from home lifestyle. I kind of start my day around nine and then I work well past six and I really don't take a break. But I don't work after that time. I don't really check my phone until the next morning at nine unless there's something critical I know that's coming. And same with the weekends. I don't look at my email or phone at all on the weekend. Make sure that my phone does not send me notifications about any of that because I don't want to be sucked into it if I'm not at my computer. I try very hard to not do that. I'm working for the weekend, John. Aren't we all? I mean, hopefully we get that four day work week. I'm looking forward to it. I I think we can do a three-day work week. I saw something today. This is not a joke. Someone was pushing a two-day work week. And I was like, (laughs) tell me more. Isn't there like a (laughs) four-hour work week or something? Four-hour work, it's a scam. Basically, it's like buy a bunch of virtual assistants. That's how you do it. Everyone is dragged in front of the judge. Judge allows grandpa and his family to pay a fine to get out of making illegal fireworks. During the hearing, Mr. Kirby says that he was at grandpa's house because he wanted to buy it. And it, Which is true in certain it, ways. It's true in a certain way, but it kind of kind of causes a... Um, it makes Alice mad that yeah, they're yeah. not just saying, well, they were there because their son is dating her. This is also why I don't think Mr. Vanderhoff is paying his taxes because he also has an illegal fireworks factory in his <laughs> basement. So That's true. Another reason <laughs> I do not think he's paying taxes. <laughs> Gotta pay your taxes, everyone. That's the one thing they'll come get you for. So not only this, uh, Alice has an outburst and says, no, I w- we were there because I'm actually marrying, t- going to marry Tony. Uh, and this causes essentially the newspapers to go crazy because it's a juicy story. Is Alice's outburst justified? Yeah, maybe. Because yeah, I think so too. Because she definitely is getting treated pretty poorly here. They all get sent home. Allison leaves the city because <laughs> she's so upset and breaks up with Tony. And in a knee-jerk reaction... Grandpa's like, well, I'm going to sell this house so we can be closer to Alice. The other plot point is, again, if Grandpa sells his home, the whole neighborhood is then going to be evicted so Kirby can create this munitions factory. But what happens is they've been at the house for a little while. Alice, she sends a note home saying how unhappy she is, that she can't see anybody. And Grandpa's just like, you know, this house means a lot to me because my wife was here and I can remind me a lot of her and I have moments that I can still smell her in the house. But it's just a house. Let's go be with Alice. Alice is going to come back. She doesn't have a job. In the process of moving, Tony shows up and he's like, I'm still in love with Alice. And they're like, we don't want to talk to you, boy. (laughs) Eventually, Grandpa comes around and is like, look, go climb in this trunk upstairs. They'll take the trunk to Alice. John, thoughts on this plan? One, I like how Grandpa's like, we don't snitch in this family, but... It's kind of funny. And like, is that romantic? I don't know if it's romantic. It's pretty funny, though. <laughs> I mean, who knows how long that case is going to be going wherever it's going is the other half of that, too. So Imagine it could be a while. They open it and he's like peed himself. I'm so sorry. <laughs> he's dead in there. <laughs> Alice shows back up before that happens. Thankfully, they have a big fight. Now that the house is sold, Mr. Kirby, his company has purchased it. He plans on merging companies with his competitor so that he owns this entire property and this munitions factory. It's a huge deal. It also means that everyone in the neighborhood has to leave. Grandpa was the holdout that was basically preventing this from happening. 
Sounds like everyone else rents in the neighborhood, which is why this is going to go down this way. There's a board meeting. Just before the board meeting, Kirby's competitor says to him, money's not as important. Go be with your son. Go be with your family. You're going to miss out on all those things in life. And then he dies. (laughs) And then he has a heart attack in the bathroom a few minutes later and dies. Kirby, you know, gets this news. He's about to go into this. He's like, I'm going to name Tony as the president of this merged company. Tony comes in and resigns and says, Dad, I haven't been able to talk to you as much as I'd like to. We're just not as close as we used to be. I think that in part changes his tune. He leaves the meeting, doesn't sign the contract. While this is going down, Tony leaves the office as well. He goes to try to find Alice that one more time. Alice happens to be there. She's heard the news that the house is sold. Goes back to visit, says she's sorry. She realizes she may have caused this by leaving. Families come back together at the house, reconcile. The deal doesn't go through, and it sounds like the neighborhood is saved. The family's going to stay in the house. And it's accomplished by Polly Wally Doodle All Day. Uh. On the harmonica. A jam between Mr. Kirby and Mr. Vanderhoff. We don't have to get into why. But it makes, doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And that's it. That's basically the end of the movie. Oh, man. I struggled so hard with those last few scenes of like watching that boardroom scene a few times, watching the jail scene, just trying to figure out like what were the smaller plot points. I tuned out. I just I would gaze off into the distance and that would be that. <laughs> and then I'd, I'd come back a few minutes later and be like, oh, God, I got to start it over again. I missed it again. <laughs> What's funny about this, John, is. I would almost would have rather this movie be worse than it is because it would be funnier to talk about. Parts of it are actually really interesting. It's just not for me. And then parts of it are actually kind of bad, but it's not bad enough to laugh at, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a real surface level. They never really dive into any of these issues. Like they touch on some of these things, you know, how should you live your life? What's the right balance? Having families that are really different when they start interacting together. They all lightly touch on these things, nothing's under the surface there like for me what really elevated this was probably right place right time it was like probably a combination of jimmy stewart being really good in this 1938 and talking about something people were actually liked and there's there's probably something to do with capra in here that i'm not fully aware of capra was a big name capra was like the spielberg of his time in many ways his name was on a movie people went and saw it so john what i'm trying to get at is like usually i'm like i could tell you why this movie won I really don't have a good idea why. Even like my normal go-to like research spots are, are like, uh, <laughs> it, it, it won. I'm like, okay, I don't know what to tell you. Watching the movie and listening to what the film historian and Frank Capra Jr. were saying, it seemed to be a comedy that everyone liked at the time. Barrymore and Gene Arthur and Jimmy Stewart. Having all those people in the movie would have drawn a crowd. I think the lightheartedness. And then it was a really popular play that they added a bunch to to further expand on the characters. So it was like going to get the director's cut of the play, if you will. And I think those are the reasons why this was a popular movie of its day. I don't think it ages very well because all of those things are lost in us at this point. Mm-hmm. And I don't particularly care about the characters. Honestly, that family was like the most annoying family in the world to me. <laughs> grating to hear the xylophone start playing and have that woman start dancing as the ballerina around the room. I'm just like, this is not fun. John, what is your two-sentence critique? I feel like this is a warm-up for Capra because one of his next films was It's a Wonderful Life. And I feel like there's a lot in this movie that is basically 
redone. It takes all the good ideas from You Can't Take It With You, refines them, and turns it into It's a Wonderful Life that even has a lot of the same cast members. It's got mm-hmm. Lionel Barrymore and Jimmy Stewart. You know, I feel like this became what is now considered probably one of the greatest movies of all time. In my opinion, the reason this movie has any value is because it gave us something a lot better a short while later. You know, what's your take on that? That's a really astute take. I agree with you. I hadn't actually put the jump from this movie to It's a Wonderful Life together until you said that. I love It's a Wonderful Life. I think it's a wonderful movie. Generally with me, this movie just feels so forced and staged. It's like it's trying to be clever. It's not really that clever. Honestly, I felt like I was being preached at. It wasn't subtle. It's it's just really not for me. The one thing I would say that I did like about it is like, I do really like Jimmy Stewart. And if he wasn't in this movie, I would have struggled even harder than I actually did to get through this. Because like you, it took me five times. Just one of those really brutal early 30s black and white best picture winners that uh, we have to grind through. It was a grind. (laughs) One that we don't have to take with us if we don't want to. I have two questions from the audience. Dan from over at the movie cellar asked us, what would we take with us into the next life? It would probably be people. Not that I want you to drop dead with me at the <laughs> You're same gonna time. You're going to kidnap me. <laughs> I mean, that's what you can't take with you in certain ways. And it's probably what you would want is the people that you like hanging out with all the time. Not a thermos full of hot dogs. Well, I mean, that's a nice second, but. <laughs> so here's my thinking on it. My general impression was that if heaven exists, all your needs would be met. And that you basically get and do whatever you want at all times. So you wouldn't need to take anything with you. You would never miss anything. If you had to take a physical object with you. Yeah, exactly. Like a, so that's let's talk about that. So like, What would it be? You're nailing it, right? So like, I would want something that would be able to remind me of all the memories of my friends and the people around me. Dan sent this message to us. He was like, I would take a book of photos. And I think that's a great idea. Though I probably yeah. wouldn't take a book. Well, maybe I would take a book. I was going to say a, a cell phone, but it runs out of charge. If I had a permanently charged cell phone with like thousands of photos on it, maybe I'd take that. (laughs) You know, hypothetically, all that stuff works, right? So you would have some kind of device. Yeah, I mean, that's a good one. But you're saying all those people are there with you then, Dave. So it doesn't even matter. I would take all my money with me. Fuck everybody else. You and the pharaohs. (laughs) (laughs) You you can't have it. It's mine. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) That's funny. I don't know if I have like a physical object I would take with me. I like the photo book idea. That's like a nice one. I don't know if I have a thing that I would necessarily take with me. Totally random. My oldest possession is a rock I found when I was a little kid. It's an agate. I was probably two years old. I still have it to this very day. You can bury me with that thing. <laughs> take your rock with you. Okay. That's right. I'm going to take the, my all my magic cards. <laughs> Play by myself. All of them? No, I have thousands. No way. Okay. One more question. If you could do whatever you wanted, what would you do? What does this relate to? <laughs> well, this is the movie. You like do what you love. Like from the work perspective or just like what are the things that I would just do yeah. if I had unlimited funds and there was no constraint? I'd probably just kind of bum around and maybe just go visit people, like travel and visit whatever I felt like doing, I suppose. If I mean, I guess the other thing that I do generally now is that we just go enjoy good food. So maybe maybe something like that. I don't know. What about you? Yeah, I would write fiction. I enjoy it. I would just write whatever I wanted. Just like I'm going to write weird ghost stories because that's what I want. Haunted Ohio. Oh, I love that book. This is why everyone turns into the podcast. This next segment. 
Winner or Wiener, the por- John? The porn name? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually why. Winner or Wiener? Sad to say it's a Wiener. It's a really plain hot dog. Yeah, it's it's a Wiener. I'm not I'm not into it. Again, there are like moments of like really a bril- brilliance and then moments of just like, I can't handle this. This is terrible. Like watch up to the first 45 minutes and just like skip everything else and watch the end. <laughs> or just go watch It's a Wonderful Life. Yeah, that's true. that's actually a better use of your time. Uh, John, poor name. You can take it. <laughs> that's good. I Yeah, that's good. What about you? You can take my dildo with you. I like yours way better. Yours is really good. Oh, okay. Anything else, Dave? So next up is going to be Midnight Suns, Ghost Rider versus Blade. And I think Ghost Rider's gonna would win in a real fight, but Blade probably wins in a movie fight. I can't wait to talk about Ghost Rider. I don't know if you followed any of the comics. Nope. Oh, dude. Uh, I'm excited to hear you talk about it. Cosmic oh. Ghost Rider. Look it up. It's a lot of fun. If you like our podcast, please uh, give us a five-star rating wherever you rate your podcasts. Uh, you can follow us on Instagram at Award Winners, and you can follow us on Twitter at Award Winners, though we're not on it. Uh, you can email us at david at awardwinners.com and john at awardwinners.com. Anything you want to leave the audience with, John? Uh, what are things the audience can take with them, Dave? Well, they could take this podcast with them everywhere in their pocket if they download it. That is true. All right. Have a good one. You say you don't know.